When I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, I took a summer class on the Christian life from Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost, one of the great expositors of Scripture of the last century. And at the beginning of class one day, Dr. Pentecost made a statement that totally baffled me, which may not be too hard to do, but this one really, really did confuse me. He said, I'm glad to see you're all here today, even though it is Juneteenth. Now, I thought I heard him wrong, so I asked, what did you say? June what? And he said, Juneteenth. And seeing the puzzled look on my face, he said, you've never heard of Juneteenth before? And I said, no. And he said, in Texas, Juneteenth is a state holiday. There are parades and celebrations all over the state. By this time, I was really confused. I thought he was still pulling my leg. It just couldn't be possible. So Dr. Pentecost went on to explain that Juneteenth commemorates June 19, 1865, that the day that the slaves in Texas learned that they had been freed two and a half years before, but their owners neglected to tell them. So I learned that Juneteenth, also known as Juneteenth Independence Day, or Freedom Day is an American holiday that does commemorate June 19, 1865, and it was the day that the abolition of slavery was announced in Texas. Juneteenth, of course, is a combination of June and 19th, Juneteenth. And I later discovered that Juneteenth is recognized in 45 states in the United States, including Idaho, about 2001, 2003. They used to have celebrations over in Boise for Juneteenth. You might remember that Abraham Lincoln issued an executive proclamation, an executive order called the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, right in the center of the Civil War. And the Emancipation Proclamation freed all the slaves, but only in states that had taken up arms against the Union. The effect of the Emancipation Proclamation was that it actually only freed those slaves who were able to escape to the North. The vast majority of slaves have been declared free, but they still lived in abject, inhumane slavery. Meanwhile, back in Texas, as we say when we lived in Texas, being isolated geographically from the rest of the states, Texas was not a battleground. In other words, there were no actual battles fought on Texas territory during the Civil War. And as slaves are not affected by the Emancipation Proclamation unless they escaped, and planters and slaveholders from other states migrated into Texas to escape the fighting. Many of them brought their slaves with them, increasing by tens of thousands the numbers of slaves at the end of the Civil War who were in Texas. Although most enslaved people lived in rural areas, more than 1,000 slaves resided in both Galveston and 1,000 more in Houston by 1860, with several hundreds residing in, in other large towns, by 1865, there was an estimated 250,000 enslaved people in Texas. The news of General Robert E. Lee's surrender on April 9, 1865 moved slowly. It did not reach Texas until May 1865, and the Confederate Army of the Trans-Mississippi did not surrender until June 2, 1865. And so on June 18, 1865, Union Army General Gordon Granger arrived at Galveston Island with 2,000 federal troops to occupy Texas on behalf of the federal government. On June 19th, Juneteenth, standing on the balcony of Galveston's Ashton Villa, 
General Red Roger Granger, excuse me, read aloud the contents of General Order Number Three, announcing the total emancipation of slaves. For over two and a half years, the slaves have been declared free, but they didn't know it. They still lived as slaves. In Texas, they'd been constitutionally free for over six months, and they continued to live as slaves. And so upon hearing the news that they were free, and like it came out of nowhere to them, the slaves headed to their churches to give thanks to God. And they organized what became the very first organized annual celebration of Juneteenth. But, as you know, the proponents of racism and slavery began to do whatever they could to continue to oppress and subjugate the former slaves in every conceivable way. For decades, there was little or no way that a freed man or a freed woman could actually live as a freed person in Texas. Many Christians are still living the same way the freed slaves did in the South, in that having been declared righteous, that is, having been justified by faith, they still remain in bondage to sin. Why are so many Christians, as Paul put it in Galatians 5.1, having been set free by Christ, are they subjected again to a yoke of slavery? As the writer of the Hebrews put it, why can't so many Christians learn to lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles them? The Apostle Paul would say that these kind of Christians are, are ignorant because they're still enslaved to sin. They don't know what they don't know, the same way the slaves were for Juneteenth. As long as the enemy of our souls can keep us ignorant of what Christ has done, as long as he can keep us ignorant with what God continues to do in our lives after we are saved, after we are justified, as long as we can stay ignorant of who we are in Christ, our true identity, we will remain in bondage to sin. And the problem is that many Christians live like they are still enslaved to sin when, in fact, they've been set free. So please turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 3 again, the sixth chapter of Romans, the third verse, page 1385. I want you to see a word here that Paul uses in this third verse of the sixth chapter. The word is translated no, K-N-O-W. After Paul asked the question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? He asked in verse 3 of Romans chapter 6, Or do you not know? There's our word. Do you not know? The two words, not know, translate one Greek word. The Greek word is agnoeo. We get the word agnostic from it. Gnostic is to know. Agnostic is to, to not know. It literally means not to know, to be ignorant. It means to have a lack of understanding, to not be able to get it, to be uninformed. The reason Paul says that believers who have died to sin still live in it is because they're agoneo. They're agnostic when it comes to it. Well, I don't know. They don't know what they don't know. And in Romans chapter 6 here, Paul is going to tell us what we need to know to cast off the yoke of slavery to sin. Now, I want you to look at a moment of what Paul wants us to know because he, he says twice more here what he wants us to know in verse 6 of Romans chapter 6. Don't be ignorant, but know this. Verse 6, knowing this, know this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. 
Now look down at verse 9. We had knowing this, now we have knowing that. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. That's going to be our main theme next Sunday for Resurrection Sunday. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Know this. Well, back to verse 3. What is the first thing that Paul wants us to know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Here Paul turns to the subject of baptism, which helps us make his point emphatically with an exclamation point. We need to know something else in order to understand what Paul wants us to know here, because that something else is, these are dry verses. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean that Paul is not talking about water baptism here. Baptism in water. We will see that water baptism is symbolic of the reality of the baptism in these verses, but these are dry verses. They are talking about a different baptism than water baptism, and if we don't get that, we'll remain without understanding. The Greek word baptizo, from which we get the word baptize or baptism, means to dip or immerse. It was used of taking a piece of cloth and dipping it and immersing it into a vat of dye and leaving it there till all the fibers are saturated. The dye would saturate the cloth and it would turn the cloth into the same color as the dye. It was a different cloth than it was before. Now it, uh, its identity had changed. Now the word baptizo never refers to sprinkling or pouring water over something. Never does. In fact, in the Greek Orthodox Church, Knowing the meaning of their own language, which is Greek, even though they wrongly practice infant baptism, they baptize babies by completely immersing them in the water, because that's what the word means. Now, there are several different kinds of baptism mentioned in the Bible, and they are distinguished by the element or the substance into which something or someone is immersed. In water baptism, the element is water. Water is the element. We baptize people, as we are commanded to do, by immersing them in the water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they come up out of the water to walk in newness of life, as it were. Now, there's another kind of baptism that's mentioned in the Scripture, and that's the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the baptism in, with, or by the Holy Spirit, where the person is immersed, saturated by the Holy Spirit. So please turn over to Matthew 3, verse 11 where we see this, the third chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the 11th verse. And here, John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness and baptizing. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the baptizer cried out to the crowd. Verse 11, chapter 3, As for me, I baptize you with water. I immerse you in, by, or with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, that is, the Christ who is coming after me, is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you, he will immerse you, with what? With the Holy Spirit and fire. John goes on to say there's one who is coming, that of course being Jesus, who will immerse people in the Holy Spirit and will immerse people in fire. The two elements here 
are fire and the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about the element of fire first. What does it mean to be baptized in fire? Jesus will immerse people in fire. We often use the phrase baptism by fire metaphorically to talk about somebody's been through a very difficult thing and I don't know whether they survived it or not. It's baptism by fire. They're found to prove somehow. But that is not the baptism by fire that John is talking about here. Because John goes on to describe the element of fire as the bab- in the baptism, which Jesus does in the next verse, in, in verse 12. He says of Jesus, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn. Now notice what it says there. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The baptism of fire referred to here is the unquenchable fire of eternal judgment. The chaff will be immersed by Jesus Christ and saturated into unquenchable fire. That's the baptism of fire here, the fire of judgment. Now the alternative that that John points out here to the baptism of fire in which Uh, Jesus baptized is now by or with the Holy Spirit, where the believer is immersed by Jesus Christ into the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand the Spirit baptism, turn over to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, the 13th verse. 1 Corinthians 12, the 13th verse, page 1407. Okay, and I'm going the wrong way there. In this 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we have that great chapter that Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about the unity of the body, one body, many members, varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects. And he says in verse 13 of the 12th chapter, For by one spirit... For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. By the one spirit, into the one spirit. Here the Holy Spirit is the element or the substance, as it were, into which people are immersed. And I I love the word picture that Paul is painting here because that phrase, made to drink, is so descriptive. It's like when a person is drowning. When a person goes under the water, completely immersed in the water, no matter how hard he tries not to, as as his lungs gasp for air, at some point his mouth comes open and he's made to drink of the water as it fills his lungs. The water comes rushing into him. Now here's the picture. The moment you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were made to drink of the Holy Spirit. You were immersed, you were saturated, baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Bible says you are indwelt by Him. He lives inside of you, saturating your entire existence. That is baptism by or with the Holy Spirit, where Jesus immersed you into the Spirit of God, and you became one with everyone else who is immersed in the Spirit of God. you know that's the basis of our unity in Christ together? It's the same Spirit. One Lord, one body, one Spirit. But that brings us back to the element of baptism in Romans chapter 6. The 6th chapter, 3rd verse again. 
In Romans, what is the element of the baptism that Paul is talking about here? What are people baptized into? What are they immersed in? Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been baptized, immersed, saturated into Jesus Christ, into what? Death. Death. Here again we see that baptizo means more than to immerse or deep or dip. In the ancient Greek, baptizo was used of people being drowned. We've already seen some of that in the, the metaphor made to drink. It was used of ships being sunk in a violent storm. They were baptized in the violent storm and they die. And the ancient historian Josephus used it metaphorically of the crowds who flooded the city of Jerusalem and wrecked the city. Baptizo was used of a riot, of violence, of destruction, of devastation and death. And so it's quite in keeping with this that Jesus referred to his death as baptism. Baptism often refers to that which is violent and destructive, deadly. Turn over to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10. Got you turning today. Mark chapter 10, verse 37, page 1247. 10th chapter of Mark, the 37th verse. This is when James and John, along with their mother, as Matthew points out, asked a pointed question to Jesus because they wanted to have the number one and the number two spots in the kingdom of God. <laughs> you know, and we know their mother was part of this. What's a Jewish mother to do? You know, to make sure that her sons get, get the best. You know, so they're, they're, they're hedging their bets here, as it were. In verse 37 of, of, Matthew, or of Mark chapter 10, after they, they asked, you know, they, they, well, Jesus said to them, no, they said to him, let me get this right, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. It's a reasonable request, you know, at the time. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What was the baptism with which Jesus was going to be baptized? He was going to die on the cross, death. You know, there's one sense where one did sit on the right and one sit on the left. James was the first apostle to be put to death by the sword of Herod, first apostle to die. John was the last apostle to die. Only after he had been dipped in hot oil, and since, what do you do when you can't kill an apostle? You exile him to the island of Patmos, where he received uh, the revelation. They were, in that sense, baptized, one on the right and one on the left. But look at verse 39. After Jesus said, are you able to do this? They said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What was the cup that Jesus was to drink? The cup of death, of suffering. 
And of course, Romans chapter 6 will show us that as believers in Jesus Christ, they were baptized into his death. So when it comes to being a Christian, we must not only think of baptism as an initiation by water, only as that wonderful, gentle liturgy by which a person publicly expresses thy identity in Christ. And, and we do that in baptism and in obedience to the Lord. And the picture is, is here, but it's just symbolic. That as we go down into the water, it's symbolic that we have died with him. As we come up out of the water, it's symbolic that we are raised with him to walk in newness of life. But here in Romans chapter 6, primarily and foremost, baptism means death. Death. Death to a whole way of life. And that's the point that Paul is making. Christians are people who have died. And their baptism emphasizes that death. Verse 4 of Romans chapter 6. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Death is the substance. Death is the element into which we are baptized. I came across a cartoon by Mary Chambers, and two couples are sitting and talking, and one woman says, well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel a little faint one time. <laughs> the cartoon captures how many of us feel about Romans 6, 2, where Paul says, we died to sin. We'd have to admit, I don't feel very dead to sin. Maybe there's been a few times I felt kind of faint towards it, but dead, no way. But when Christ was buried, you were buried with him. You were immersed into the same cold stone tomb in the earth as he was. And why does Paul emphasize not only Christ's death, but also the fact that we were buried with him through baptism? Burial is mentioned because it confirms that death has occurred. Generally speaking, you don't bury a living person, right? To say that we were buried with Christ means we really died with him. Baptism by immersion in water pictures this when a person goes under the water. Immersion in water pictures the spiritual reality, but when we believed in Christ, we became fully identified with him in his death and burial. We're united with him in that historic action. And we became fully identified with Christ in his resurrection. Verse 4 again, we'll have much more to say about the resurrection next week. But verse 4 again, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead from the, with, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Christ was raised bodily from the grave, not just spiritually. He was raised bodily as well, but Spiritually, we were in him so that when he was raised in victory over sin and death, we were raised also in victory over sin and death. Now, we will not receive our new resurrection bodies, which will be completely free from sin, until Jesus returns. But before then, the action on our part as a result of our spiritual resurrection with Christ is that, see that there at the end of verse 4, we shall walk in newness of life. Newness of life. As a result of our union with Christ in his resurrection, we are to walk with a new kind of life. That means that our new walk in Christ should be totally distinct from our life before Christ. We should begin developing transformed minds through God's word so that our whole worldview lines up with scripture. 
Our motives for why we do why we do certain things and what we do should no longer be selfish, but rather be for God's glory. Our attitudes, especially in trials, should not be complaining, but rather what? Giving thanks to God. Our emotions should be marked by joy and hope in the Lord. Our, our character should be developing the fruit of the Spirit. The use of our time and money should be managed in light of eternal values, and we should be walking in consistent obedience to God's commandments, which, which are for our good. You go, Bob, Pastor, that's a lot of stuff there. But that's what Paul is going to teach in the book of Romans. Now, we need to recognize the description of this newness of life as a walk implies a long, steady, gradual process. What's a walk? One step in front of the other. Paul is not talking about perfection here, but rather he's talking about a direction of life in which we sin less and less and we obey God more and more. Over time, we should make progress in holy, obedient living as those who have been raised up with Christ. Eugene Peterson gives a definition of discipleship that fits well, as, well here as a definition of walking in newness of life. He says that discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Don't you love that? Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. doesn't mean we don't get off here and there, but it's that long obedience. It's the same in walking in newness of life. Walking in newness of life is a long obedience, step by step, in the same direction. But Paul hasn't explained yet how all this is possible. How do we walk in newness of life? Why can we throw off the bonds of sin and walk in freedom and liberty in the Spirit of God? Verse 6, verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, the second thing we are to know, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The key to what Paul wants us to know and what we need to understand in order to walk in newness of life is here in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self, literally our old man, was crucified with him. The old man. We read about the old man often in, in the New Testament. Our old man was crucified, dead, killed, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that is, rendered inoperative. That's what the word means. So what is the old man and what happened to this guy? The old man is our old sinful nature. The nature that we had before we came to Jesus Christ, it, it refers to the total essence of man that was corrupted by the fall of Adam. The old man emphasizes the source of the corruption and takes us back to Adam, our first father, whose very nature was corrupted by his disobedience and who passed on his nature to all his descendants. We were all born as a descendant of Adam with an old man, an old nature. And so the old man refers to the total unregenerate person and the nature he received because of his connection with Adam, because he's a child of Adam. In other words, the old man refers to who we were before God in salvation. Made each one of us, made each believing sinner a new man in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is going to keep coming up in these verses. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things are come. The old man is who we were in Adam. The new man is who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, for the regenerate, that means those who are born again, the old man, the old self, was crucified with Christ. He is dead. He has no power over you. A dead man has no power. By nature, you no longer have a propensity to sin. Now, the old man had no choice. He was a slave to sin. Of course, he did some things right. He behaved rightly the best he could, but he had nothing within himself to keep from sinning. His natural propensity was to sin because that's his nature. He was a sinner. But if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ. You have been set free from sin because the old man has been crucified with Christ. That's what we see in verse 7. We could say this is the Christian's Juneteenth. For he who has died is freed from sin. We are no longer in Adam, but now we are in Christ, who is our life. When Paul says our old man was crucified with him, he means that we were, that what we were before we were saved died with Christ on the cross. There's a complete severance here between what we were under the reign of sin and death in Adam and what we have become under the reign of grace to eternal life in Christ Jesus. Our old life ended, as crucified implies. But you're probably all sensing a problem here, if you're still with me. <laughs> and the problem is, then why do I still sin? Why is it such a struggle at times? Why is it so hard at times to live in the grace and the freedom that I have in Jesus Christ? So I want to give you just one more thought here, and we'll see much more of this as we continue in these chapters in Romans. Look at verse 19 of this 16th chapter, or the 6th chapter. 6th chapter of Romans, the 19th verse. Paul uses a word here that he uses often in the letter to the Romans. It's the word flesh. The flesh. Verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, the members of your flesh, just as you gave them as, as a slave to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, that is, so now in Christ Jesus, present your members as slaves, members of what? The members of your flesh, of your body, as slaves to righteousness and resulting in, in sanctification. The flesh refers to our humanness that has been corrupted by sin. It's the totality of all that a person is expressed through the flesh. It's the mind, the will, the emotions, everything that we think of of our, our existence in the flesh that as a result of the fall of Adam is corrupt. The flesh is weak. It is frail, the Bible says. The flesh has a darkened mind. It has a degraded emotional capacity. It has a will that is deadened towards God. It is totally self-centered. Every one of us were born into this world with that hanging on us. And Paul said that in the flesh, in his flesh, there's no good thing. The problem is, even though the old man was dead or crucified with Christ, we still live in the flesh, don't we? And here's the problem. 
By the time you came to Christ and your old man was crucified with Christ and you have been set free from sin, you have reached your spiritual Juneteenth, your flesh, having been born with this frail, weak, sinful nature, has been trained and brainwashed by the old man to live and think in certain ways because that's how you lived as an old man. Or an old woman, if you, if you want to be non-sexist here. All the sinful desires and habits and the deeds of the flesh that are in you when you are born again and the old man is crucified do not magically disappear just because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Those sinful habits, those sinful desires reside in our, in our flesh. And Paul is going to spend the next three chapters showing us how to present the members of our flesh, not as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, but as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification or holiness. Well, in Dr. Pentecost's class, I didn't just learn about Juneteenth. <laughs> so I want to close uh, with the words of my professor as I learned them in his class and from his book that was called, was on the Christian life. The, the book was called uh, designed to be like Christ, designed to be like Christ. He, he summarizes it so well. He says, We have been identified with Christ, baptized into Jesus Christ, in order that we might live unto God. We have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that we might be dead unto control by the sin nature. Just as a physical corpse no longer needs to respond to any command issued to it, and just as that corpse need not obey any constituted authority that exercised control over the person when he was living, so we who have died with Christ need not obey the old commander who once reigned supreme in our lives. He goes on, the power of sin has not been canceled. The practice of sin has not become an impossibility. But we are delivered through our death with Christ from the obligation to obey the commands of the sin nature. We have been liberated from servitude to sin. He says, ah, oh, yes, it is possible to submit ourselves to the old regime. We may obey a defeated dictator, but if we do, we do it by choice and not by necessity. Before we were born into God's family, we had an ear that could only hear the commands issued by the old sin nature. We were like a radio tuned to just one wavelength, the wavelength that carried the commands of the sin nature. But by the new birth, we have been given a new capacity or a new wavelength. And now we must choose whether we will take commands coming from the old wavelength or the new. He says, we have been crucified with Christ so that Christ may live his life through us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we continue through these very difficult at times and very deep things in and, and Paul's letter to the Romans and what it has to do with how we shall live today, Lord. I pray that uh, we would just be impressed with this this morning, Father, that the old man has died with Christ, who we were before we came to Christ. He's dead. He's gone. He has no power over us. And Father, I pray that you would show us through your Holy Spirit and continue to show us through your word how we can live in the freedom and the grace and the joy that you have for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray for this in his name.
Amen.